It's good to be back with you tonight. We uh, were privileged to be able to go over to Chattanooga this morning and uh, to witness the new birth, the baptism of our nephew. And uh, hate, hated to miss worship here, hated to miss Alex's sermon, but certainly thankful that we could gather with family and to see uh, our little, I say little, but now he's my brother in Christ, Owen, uh, be baptized. And when he came up out of that water, we began to sing Victory in Jesus. And I thought to myself, this is the second time that I have sung Victory in Jesus in the last week. Uh, the other time was at our dear, beloved brother Delbert's funeral. And I just thought, you know, when you're in Christ, the, the most joyful and the saddest moments of your life are victorious. Um, because of Christ, being in Christ, we have victory over sin uh, and death. We are more than conquerors in Christ. And so I, I was just overcome with a sense of gratitude for the victory that we can all experience in Jesus Christ. And it was a blessing to be able to witness that today. I also hated to miss uh, the announcement that was made about uh, new elders and deacons being selected. We are so blessed here that there are so many men who are qualified and able and willing to serve uh, in these roles. And I am confident that the men who have been put before us uh, to become deacons and elders will do an exceptional job in their service and leadership uh, for our congregation. And we should be praying for them. And we should be praying for those who are currently serving. We should be praying for our entire congregation that we will take advantage of every opportunity God throws our way to serve and to spread the gospel. Uh, let us continue to look ahead. Let's continue to move forward. Uh, let us not be... Let us rejoice in the past, but let us be forward-thinking. Let us not be satisfied with the work that has been done thus far. Let's not be content or complacent. Let's look ahead uh, and continue to work together, allow God to work through us uh, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and continue to experience growth in this place and growth in the kingdom in the various places we support around the world. Tonight, as was the case last week, I'm assuming that you have come back uh, because, you know, on this evening, when it would have been much easier for, for you to pull the lever on the lazy boy and just, you know, head on back into la-la land, you decided to come here. And I assume it's because you have a desire to study the Word uh, and, and you want to dig into uh, the Scriptures a little more to increase your understanding uh, of, of God and His will for your life. And so we're going to do that as we did last week. So I hope you've got your Bible with you. We're going to be turning to several places. And again, I hope this will be interesting uh, to you, but also meaningful and transformational in your spiritual life. We're going to talk about some, I'm going to be honest with you, some bizarre verses that occur in Genesis chapter 6, a portion of which was read for us by Keith. Genesis 6 Verses 1 through 4, this is a section of Scripture that occurs right before we read about Noah and the flood. And so as you remember, wickedness has increased on the earth to the point that God regrets having ever made His human creation. And He says, I'm going to blot them out. But 
Verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we, back during vacation Bible school, I taught an adult class in, in this auditorium about Noah. And somebody came up to me afterwards and said, explain to me these first few verses of Genesis 6. What is going on? We, on our family vacation, we were looking at Genesis 6 and there were all sorts of questions and theories that were proposed. And so I want you to check into that and then get back with me. And so this is me getting back with that person uh, and all of you tonight um, can, can witness that. But this came about a, as a question from one of our members about these verses. So without further ado, let's read these verses and then we'll talk about them briefly. And we're not going to, you know, uh, turn over every stone tonight, answer every question there is. But hopefully we'll come to a greater, a better understanding of what's happening here. Genesis 6, 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, or I have a footnote that says, or giants, were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown, the Nephilim. Who were the Nephilim? These giants, these mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. What happened to them? Why do we not see them around today? Well, the simple answer to that, I believe, and maybe, you know, I may say some things tonight and you want to fill me in in the lobby on the way out and that's fine, but um, I believe these men uh, were wiped out in the flood. The flood is what occurs directly after we are introduced to them here. But you may say, well, we have another occurrence of them. Uh, in the scriptures after the flood in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33. So if you'd like to turn over there, you can. Uh, or otherwise, keep your place in Genesis 6, and I'll just share this with you. This is when the 12 spies from the nation of Israel are sent into the promised land in order to scout it out. We're talking about some of this stuff on Sunday mornings uh, in our study of Joshua in Sunday school. These 12 spies go into the land, you know, check, check out... The, the landscape and the people and come back, bring us a report of what we should expect when we go in to take conquest of the land. And as you'll remember, they came back, 10 of them, you know, their knees were knocking, they were terrified by what they saw. They said, there's no way that we'll ever be able to, to make conquest of the land. Two, there were only two exceptions, and their names, Joshua and Caleb. And they said, let's trust in the Lord. He has given us this land. And so he's going to have our back when we go in. Let's, let's go in with courage and faith. Uh, but in their report, the other ten say this in verse 33. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. 
So how are the Nephilim still alive? Well, I think a simple explanation to this is this is an exaggerated report of some guys who lacked faith and whose hearts were filled with fear about what God had caused them what God had called them to do and that caused them to exaggerate what they had seen. And so they come back with this fabricated report that hey, we don't need to go in there. We need to to avoid what God has told us to do because the giants are there. Remember the Nephilim from days past, they're still with us and they're in the land. I don't think that they actually saw the people to whom God refers, to whom the scriptures refer back in Genesis. I think that because of their fear, they seemed bigger than they really were. So I'll stand by what I said earlier. This class of people, mysterious class of people that we are introduced to in Genesis 6 are taken out uh, by the flood. A lot of questions here from these first few verses, but I want to hone in on one, and, and it is this. Who are the sons of God? You see here in verse 2 that the Scriptures make reference to the sons of God who saw the daughters of man uh, and thought they were attractive. Now certainly we refer to Christians as sons of God or daughters of God. But this, um, this phrase here is used in a special way. And when we read it, we are left with this question, you know, who is Scripture referring to here? Well, some theories that have been proposed by various scholars through the years. I'm going to run through these first two pretty quickly. Here's one. Maybe these sons of God who joined together with the daughters of man and produced the Nephilim, maybe they were tyrannical human judges or kings, powerful men, Maybe in the ungodly line of, of Lamech, possibly demon-possessed. That's one theory. No further comment. Or maybe they were followers of God among the male descendants of Seth, while the daughters of man are ungodly female descendants of Cain. So that's what some have said. But... Either of those options, my question is, how would either of those possibilities produce this class of people that are described as having giant-like features, the Nephilim, these powerful ancient men, mighty men of renown? I just don't think that these first two quite, quite do it, for me at least. And in, in my reading... I think there's another theory that is more compelling. And if you were in the class that I did on angels uh, about three years ago on Wednesday nights, you may remember some of this material. We've talked about a little bit of this before. There's another theory that I think is more compelling. I think it's possible, and I'm going to say possible, and I'm using the word theory uh, because... In many ways, we are dealing in the realm of opinion here. But I think that maybe the sons of God refer to angels, heavenly beings, who rebelled against God by uniting in a sexual way with women 
on the earth. And if that just sounds totally outlandish, hang with me. Just hang with me for a few minutes here. And, and we're going to dig into this because I think there is much to commend this theory. All right. So, first of all, there is an argument here to be made from, from linguistics, from language. Uh, Job, for instance, the author of Job, uses the phrase sons of God to refer to angels, to refer to heavenly beings. And so this is not without precedent in the Scriptures. So from a language perspective, we can know that elsewhere in the Bible, this phrase is used uh, to refer to angels, sons of God. Why don't you look with me just for a sampling in Job chapter 1, verse 6. Job 1, 6. All right. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And we know there that the author is, is referring to the heavenly host, heavenly beings, angels. Chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Same, uh, same idea there. What about 38.7 of Job? 38.7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Speaking of a heavenly scene there and angels. So we know that elsewhere in the Bible, angels are referred to by the phrase sons of God. And so it's not outside the realm of possibility that in Genesis chapter 6, the phrase sons of God might also be referring to angels here. What about also an argument from tradition? And what I mean here is the Jewish tradition about this particular passage in the first century A.D., in the time of Jesus, and when the, around the time when the New Testament was being written, attested to the common belief that angels had defiled themselves by uniting with women in order to produce giant offspring. There is extra-biblical literature. There are uh, Jewish writings from this era uh, that attest to this belief. Now, I'm not saying that these writings are inspired but as we will see there are some inspired writings uh, that seem to pick up on this tradition and at least affirm part of it but in general there was sort of a widespread belief among the Jews that this was a widespread interpretation of this passage at in the, the time of Christ in the era when he walked the earth and when the New Testament was being written let me share, and I'm going to refer to a book here that I used in that class, written by a, a member of Churches of Christ. His name is Michael O'Neill. You'll remember this book if you were in this class. An Angel's View. Pretty, pretty fascinating book. And he quotes from First Enoch. First Enoch provides a detailed account and it is representative of the Jewish literature and historical writings that abounded with reference to this belief. So listen, listen here. For what reason have you abandoned the high, holy, and eternal heaven and slept with women and defiled yourselves with the daughters of the people, taking wives, acting like the children of the earth, and begetting giant sons? So you hear this reflected in this, in this uh, piece of writing. Surely you, you used to be holy, spiritual, the living ones, possessing eternal life. 
But now you have defiled yourselves with women and with the blood of the flesh begotten children. You have lusted with the blood of the people like them producing blood and flesh which die and perish. So that is just one example from a large collection of Jewish literature around the time that Jesus was alive and the New Testament was being written that attests to this common belief that Genesis 6 refers to angels rebelling against God and entering into sexual relationships with women on the earth. As crazy as that sounds. Um, So, we have an argument here from linguistics, an argument from tradition, but most importantly, what what does Scripture have to say? What does the Bible have to say about any of this? Well, maybe one of the hang-ups for you in thinking about this is, why would angels do that? Or can angels do that? You know, aren't, wouldn't they be irresistibly connected to God? You know, in a way that they would never rebel? Well, I think Scripture speaks to the fact that uh, angels voluntarily obey God in a way similar to, to us. I'm thinking about Psalm 103. Psalm 103, which I think among other places in the Bible implies that angels are creatures of choice and they can decide whether they want to continue in devotion to God or not. Psalm 103, verse 20, listen to what, how the psalmist speaks here. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His, of his word. So the psalmist speaks of angels choosing to obey, which implies that they also had the choice to disobey. And here's the, 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 the Mac Daddy, uh, a couple, pardon that phrase, a couple passages here. Here's what we're really, here's the meat of it. This is what I'm really getting to, okay? Two passages reference a tragic angel event that could be Genesis 6. Could be looking back to Genesis 6. Look with me in two places. Jude 1, so maybe keep your place back in uh, Genesis. Jude 1 at verse 6. We'll look at verses 6 and 7. Jude, and I shouldn't even say 1. Jude is so small that there really are no chapters. So Jude verses 6 and 7. You got Revelation, go one book back here in Jude. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So it seems possible to me that this mysterious event that Jude refers to in this verse might... uh, connect with, might be referring to Genesis 6. And we learn here something that we do not learn in Genesis 6, and that is the the punishment, the consequences for what these angels did, which is they are kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. God has, has punished them and will punish them eternally for their rebellion. 
Verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now Jude doesn't go into more detail here and there are many places in the scriptures, tell me I'm not the only one where you think, boy, I wish we had a little bit more. I wish God had just revealed a few more details, but always we have the, the, the confidence that we have been given what we need to know, even though we might long to know a bit more. And this is one of those places. What's going on here? Well, it leads me to believe that the people to whom Jude is writing would have had some context for this, whereas we today do not. Uh, let's look at 2 Peter. This is the other one, 2 Peter 2.4. 2 Peter 2.4, a few pages back. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? The punishment that the angels endured from having rebelled against God, similarly described in 2 Peter as in Jude, to be kept until the judgment if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, so on and so forth. He's making a broader point here, but one of the examples he uses are the angels. And this big tragic event where they rebelled against God uh, in a way that is similar to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, according to Jude. Which leads me to, to... I think it solidifies this idea even more, the fact that Jude compares the angel's sin to Sodom and Gomorrah, the people there. Because that implies that the angels had sinned in a sexual way, grievously. Which would connect with Genesis 6, would it not? In the way that the sons of God, maybe angels, saw the daughters of man, found them to be attractive, and went into them, united with them, in order to create these mysterious, giant-like people, the Nephilim. Well, you say, I just still can't quite buy that, Joseph, because Mark chapter 2, verse 25, talks about how angels are... Oh, goodness, I knew this was going to happen. I have written down the wrong reference. There is a verse in Mark that speaks of angels neither getting married or being given in marriage. You recall this. I had written down Mark 2.25. If anybody has an excellent memory, it's going to turn into a Bible quiz here. You know where that is? Say it again. Okay. Oh, okay. So it's in Matthew 22. But it's also in Mark 12.25. So one little digit makes a big difference. Mark 12.25. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Like the angels in heaven. At the resurrection, we will be like them in that marriage, which is a temporary arrangement on the earth, we will not experience there like the angels. Well, that is their heavenly arrangement, but they were not satisfied with that. And they saw, going by this theory here, they saw these women that God had made and they looked appealing to them. 
And they rejected the heavenly arrangement and rebelled against God. So, suffice it to say, I think that this is the likeliest meaning of sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. And maybe you think, well, that still, that still just sounds too fantastical to me. Well, as a Bible-believing Christian, I've accepted more amazing uh, events than that. I believe that the waters of the Red Sea miraculously parted so that God's people, the Israelites, could cross over on dry land. Do you believe that? I believe that God sent waters to cover over the entire earth and only one man and his family were saved aboard a vessel that he built. I believe that, do you? I believe that all of the miracle accounts that are recorded in the Gospels, all of the healings and the feedings and the resurrections that Jesus performed as recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I believe that, do you? I believe that Jesus Christ was dead not a breath in him, laid in a tomb and on the third day came back to life? I believe that, do you? I believe that he appeared to the Apostle Paul on the road. I believe in the vision that John has in the book of Revelation. I believe Jesus Christ is coming again, that graves will be opened and emptied, that all will be raised, that he'll bring with him those who have fallen asleep and that all the faithful will live forevermore in the new heaven and earth. I believe that. Pretty fantastical. So this is not too big a stretch for me. As crazy as it sounds. But I will say that it is my opinion. And I would dare not force this on any of you. And I would dare not make it into an issue of fellowship. I, don't, I do not regard it as a central tenet of the Christian faith. But I do find it very interesting. And I think that it's a possibility. And I think a compelling case can be made for it. And maybe you're sitting there tonight thinking, well, that is all very interesting, but so what? I mean, how does that affect me? What sort of implications does any of this have for my Christian life? Well, let me share a couple thoughts that I have with you. Let me share as we close, and we're, we're winding down here. Let me share, just from these observations, both a warning and a blessing. First, here's the warning. If these are angels, then we can conclude from Genesis chapter 6 that angels are tempted in very much the way that we are. And, you know, we read in the Scriptures that many angels have taken on the form of man in order to serve God and they've appeared to humans uh, and if they have taken on the form of man it is not too difficult to believe they would be tempted as we are I find this connection very interesting go back to Genesis 6 where it all began look at what happens in verse 2 the sons of God saw the daughters of man and they looked good they were attractive to them they saw a good thing that God had made, a good creation of God. And they found it appealing. But then what did they do? They took what God had made. Something good in God's creation used 
in disobedience and sinful rebellion against God. Now look at this. Genesis, go back a few chapters. Genesis chapter 3. What happens when the woman rebels against God? She saw that the tree was good for food. And it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate it. Saw, good, took. Check this out. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Look at how the Bible describes what happens to King David. King David, that mighty ruler of God's people, a man after God's own heart. And this stunning fall from grace that we see, not irredeemable, of course, but this gross moral failure that David faces in chapter 11. Look at this language. Verse 2. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And she looked good. The woman was very beautiful, the scriptures say. And he sent and required about the woman and one of his messengers says, that's Bathsheba and she's the wife of Uriah. Didn't phase David. He sent messengers and what? He took. He took her for his own sinful passions and desires. He took her. Something good in God's creation used in disobedience and sinful rebellion against God. The process is the same every single time. We see something that's good and, and we twist it, we distort it, we manipulate it, we, we are led away by our own desire to rebel and there are always tragic consequences to be faced. As we read about in Genesis 6 and into the New Testament, always tragic consequences. And not one of us are immune to this temptation and look, we're talking, we're talking about sexual temptation tonight. And I can think of no other type of temptation that is more compelling, more powerful, especially for men, than sexual temptation. And if we are not vigilant and watchful and on our guard and abiding in Christ and being devoted to the work of the church, and confessing our, our struggles and temptations to, to trusted, faithful believers, we are prone to being led away just, just like David, just like Eve, just like the angels, possibly. Let this passage, this passage is not without meaning for our spiritual life. Let it serve as a warning of the ways in which we are led to sin, led away by our temptation, and the consequences that will be faced as a result. The second thing I want to share with you as we wrap up, the first, a warning, the second, a blessing. 
the angels don't seem to get a second chance here. Like we do on this side of eternity, in this life. They don't get a second chance. They rebel from God and they face eternal judgment. Why? Well, again, I'm going to turn to a passage from this helpful book. The writer says, Unlike us humans, these angels had witnessed firsthand God's holiness and majesty. They had been in the presence of a holy, mighty, beautiful, glorious God. Why would they choose anything other than that? And yet they did. And this experience provided the angels being in the presence of God with an understanding of God and His ways that is currently beyond our comprehension. Because they pursued a path of rebellion against God's holy nature, they placed themselves in an unrecoverable state. Because they'd been there. They had seen the beauty of God and heaven. And they chose something other than that. And God says, you have seen all that I have to offer and you're not interested? That's fine. But you'll have to live with the choice that you have made forevermore. We, on the other hand, until Jesus returns, we are, we are given an opportunity, countless opportunities, to stay devoted to Jesus Christ. To continue in faithfulness to our Lord. In this sense, we have it better than the angels. Because God can constantly in this life, as long as there is breath in our lungs, God consistently extends grace to us. As we go astray, the offer is still on the table. Come back. The Father waits for us with open arms. Maybe we think it'd be nice to be an angel, but I happen to think we are even more blessed than the angels in that God wants to give us His unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. Look in Hebrews chapter 2 at verse 16, and we'll wrap up in Hebrews, and I think you'll agree. Hebrews 2, 16 and 17, you'll see how special we are. Us humans. For surely it is not angels that he helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. The Hebrews writer. 2.16. Verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. In the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus went to that cross. In order to redeem. Us sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. His precious human creation. He did that for us. That's how much He loves us. And our God is gracious and merciful and long-suffering and forbearing and patient. He's patient with us. Giving us chance after chance after chance to return to Him. But I do need to tell you this. His patience will not hold out forever. There is coming a day when our eternal state will be secure. When Jesus returns and the judgment day occurs, um, we'll be out of chances. But until that time, 
God extends a gracious invitation to, to come and to live in relationship with Him forever through Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Let's end here. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Be so careful that that type of heart doesn't develop in you, but exhort one another every day, encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, as long as we still have breath in our lungs, as long as the sun is still in the sky, until Jesus returns, let us be encouraging and exhorting one another to stay faithful to the Lord that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. God is a gracious God. And let us not spurn his offer of forgiveness and eternal life by being led away by our own sinful desires. Tonight, you have an opportunity to come to make Jesus Lord and Savior. We would love to assist you in that if you want to come and, be, and confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for you, that he rose again on the third day, that uh, he paid it all. So that you could live with God forever, you can come and be baptized into Christ, have your sins washed away, rise up a new creature. If you're struggling in any way uh, and you need the prayers of this body of believers, why don't you come and let's pray with you, let's pray for you. If you need to rededicate your life to Jesus tonight, this is also an opportunity for you to do that. Right now as we stand and sing.